Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. The five nominated were Rhea Gossett in Sunrise at Campobello, Deborah Carr in The Sundowners, Shirley MacLaine in The Apartments, Melina Mercury in Never on Sunday, and Elizabeth Taylor in Butterfield 8. The envelope, please. Elizabeth Taylor. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today we will be discussing the uh, 1961, 1962 win for Elizabeth Taylor for Butterfield 8, um, a.k.a. the tracheotomy year. Um, <laughs> we are joined by uh, Bill Antonio, the co-host of Bad Gay Movies hello, hello. Uh, podcast. And um, welcome back. Uh, welcome back. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for uh, having me on again. It's always a pleasure to do this. Uh, I particularly love that you uh, always ask me on to do the old movies because you know I'm the only person who bothers to watch them. Just kidding. <laughs> and, uh, it's, and it's you and my friend Danny. Danny is uh, he's also another frequent guest. He loves the old movies mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, he's great. Um, so I really too. enjoyed his episodes actually. Um, oh, good. Yes, uh, and also this I was really happy you asked me to do this year because um, all five of them are favorite actresses of mine. In terms of the movies, it's a different story, but uh, I love all five of these ladies, so. Well, of the nominees, this is my first time seeing Deborah Kerr. This is my first time Mm -hmm. seeing uh, Melina... Mercury. Is it Mercury? Mercury, yeah. Mercury, okay. Oh, yes. Because, okay, so you're Greek, right? I am, yeah. So So watch what you fucking say. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Okay, so just scratch out all this uh, Greek material Mm -hmm. that I have now. Uh, And uh, Greer Garson, I've never seen her... In a film. So oh, I am okay. so excited to talk about every single one of these nominees because, how do I say this? Every single person, except for maybe Shirley MacLaine, was so ridiculous and like <laughs> funny to me. Okay. That I loved every single one of these uh, movies except for one I hated with a passion. And uh, I actually i'm completely undecided of who i want to select as the winner so i'm kind of hoping that by the end of this episode i'll have an idea because right now it's between three people (laughs) right i can totally understand why uh and we'll get into that but yeah and i also hope that the one you hated is the one that i also am not a fan of but we'll see (laughs) um so before we jump into any of that i will i do want to ask you because now uh being you are also in toronto you're back into Mm -hmm. we're back into stage two of Mm -hmm of the lockdown how are you how are you handling that um well i can't say that i was living it up in stage three enough that it makes that much of a difference <laughs> to me although i did go to a few restaurants so you know fine but um sure i don't know you know it's been a tough year and you're mm. when you are as fortunate as i am and i really am fortunate given that like my livelihood hasn't been threatened by this in any way uh, you're kind of caught because on the one hand, I know that I'm luckier than a lot of people, but on the other hand, uh, it's still, the, my mental health still feels like an uphill battle a lot since this all began. Mm. Um, so I'm doing my best to, you know, focus on the good stuff and be honest about the bad stuff and just get through it. You know, like what else is there to do? Well, I mean, my like career obviously got completely canceled and then we kind of went back into it. And then I was like kind of getting back into a rhythm. I was working on the weekends again. Mm-hmm. It was like slowly coming back. And then when we went back into stage two last week, it was like all of my gigs. And I was doing I a festival. I know. Everything got canceled. Um, I am doing a drive-in show though at um, Ontario Place. But um, I mean, I don't, I'll be performing. It's like a drive-through, not a drive-through, but like a, a drive-in theater Okay. And I'm going to be performing for a bunch of people in cars. I have no idea what that's going to look or sound like. Um, well, it's going to be, it. I mean, you, I don't need to tell you this as a stand-up comic. A lot of the energy you give is the energy you get in a crowded room of people sitting around at a table. So, you know, yeah. people are going to be laughing silently behind a windshield. It's going to be very hard for you to sort of gauge how you're doing, I'm, I'm assuming. But, <laughs> you know, this is, uh, stand-up comics are like the bravest performers out there. This is what you guys do. You, uh... 
you are uh, reeds withstanding a windstorm. You've you've put up with the worst that any performer has ever put up with. So, you know, you'll All get through time. it. All the time. Uh, we always do. That's what makes us so funny is because we're bitter. Okay, so this year <laughs> at the Oscars, so it was 1961. So the 1961 yeah. Oscars, I should know this. Uh, so Best uh, Picture went to The Apartment. Mm-hmm. Best Actor went to Burt Lancaster for a movie called Elmer G- Gantry. Gantry. Yeah. Um, Best Supporting Actor went to Peter uh, Ustinov for Spartacus. Mm-hmm. Best Supporting Actress, Shirley Jones for Elmer Gantry. It's mm-hmm. a very popular film. And Best Director went to Billy Wilder for yeah. The Apartment. Um, I feel like that would be just kind of like a good place to start um, is Shirley MacLaine mm-hmm. in The Apartment. So going into this, I understood um, that Shirley MacLaine was kind of the odds on favor to win because this movie was very critically acclaimed. Mm-hmm. I actually really did enjoy this movie, even though there were so many things that didn't really make sense and also don't really hold up to today's standards. Right. But what I thought was kind of interesting was I just did the episode of Olivia de Havilland's first Oscar. Um, and in it, one of the nominees, Celia Johnson for the movie brief encounter mm-hmm. was one of the movies that we watched. And that is actually what this movie is based on. And I didn't even time it that way. Like it just kind of happened that way. But I thought that was actually really kind of interesting. Cause I remember the scene that this is based on. Um, Shirley MacLaine has the same birthday as me as I found out. Oh, that's Excuse cool. Me. April 24th. Yeah. I'm also uh Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand as well. Yeah. I knew and Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> All uh, those fabulous bitches. <laughs> And um, what I'm going to say is that, uh, yeah, everyone thought that Shirley MacLaine would have won. And honestly, after watching all of these movies, I I still honestly am very undecided. And I'm kind of hoping that you and I can kind of get to... Cause she, okay, so Shirley MacLaine won the Golden Globe and she won the BAFTA mm-hmm. for Best Lead Actress for this movie. So yeah. I think everyone was kind of expecting her to win. And then obviously Elizabeth Taylor won because of the tracheotomy situation. <laughs> I have a different opinion about that, even though she, even Elizabeth Taylor, even said herself that the movie is a, in her words, piece of shit. Yeah. Um, I don't agree. I actually loved the movie. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, loved that movie. Um, but Shirley MacLaine in the apartment. One. Th- okay. I will. I'll just say that. Um, it was being like all problematic things aside. It was a different time. I understand that. But I just didn't understand how people couldn't have just gone to a motel or like, I don't know. Like uh, they, because I, the world was a lot less anonymous back then. Uh, motels meant leaving signatures on books. And it also meant spending money. These guys are leches who cheat on their wives and they're also super cheap. And uh, it also, it's easier to just go to a midtown apartment that's not far from the office. And then you're, you're done fucking her by seven and you have, you're on the train back to Scarsdale and she's wherever she is. So I I totally get what you, uh, what you mean, but like people didn't just turn the other way back then the way they do now, you know, like uh, motels would have involved a motel owner who sees you coming in and knows what you're up to. And uh, you just don't, you don't want to leave that kind of a trail. But couldn't you have just like paid cash and given a false name? Yep, you could. It's just that you could also save money by using this guy's apartment, which is also like nicer than a motel because it's not uh, divey like a motel and it's got like a kitchen and, you know, so uh, yeah, I, I, I totally get it. I think that the apartment in the apartment is something of a, is a, a symbol of this idea that like, America says that it's this great industry that's busy at work, but actually what everyone's really busy at is sex and illicit sex. And by the sixties, you have America become this really like this global power. This is post-war prosperity reaching its Zenith. That's why there's all those shots of like the new, um, the new skyscrapers that that were all brand Mm -hmm. new at the time, right? Like they, they just look like New York to us now. Um, And Um, Billy Wilder is the first person to sort of find something of a dark, center to everything that everybody else thinks of as being glorious and successful. I mean, I guess so. I actually really did enjoy this movie. Mm -hmm. There were some parts that I obviously could have done without, but um, it was kind of, so this was the last black and white film to win best picture. And then up until the artist, which up until Schindler's list actually. Yeah. Oh, was it? Well, Mm -hmm. isn't that movie, doesn't it open in color? No. Uh, well, yeah. Okay. There's like, Two, yeah, two scenes no. at the beginning at the end. Wow. <laughs> wow. Doesn't count. Yeah. Um, and so 
Shirley MacLaine's character in this movie is kind of just like this broken person mm-hmm. and she couldn't spell words and she illiteracy was hot was hot back then it was like everyone's must have well it's it's also kind of to show how she's kind of working class um she's sort of a prototype of a manic pixie dream girl except she's not annoying and she actually is like a real <laughs> person you know i yes. uh, i i love i love shirley MacLaine in this movie i think it's certainly one of her career highlights and partly what i love about her in this category is that like a lot of award-nominated performances, particularly the Oscars, for women are usually wives or hookers. Right. And in yes. this category, we have two wives and two hookers. And then we have Shirley MacLaine, who is, uh, you know, not towing the line in terms of sexual morality. You know, she's having an affair with a married man. And she's obviously uh, somewhat depressed. But she's also complicated. And she's delightful. And you can see why he's in love with her. And... Sometimes you get the impression that Jack Lemmon only has a a shallow idea of her, of why he's in love with her. But we, as an audience, see her very clearly. You know, we see her pain. Mm -hmm. And because Shirley has this great control in the way she... There's so many scenes where the the camera's just on her face and she is reacting to things without overdoing it. You can see it in her eyes, the complicated feelings she thinks about things. I thought one thing that was very interesting about her performance was how in that period in time, it was like taking your job seriously. Mm -hmm. Like it was very important. And she took her job as an elevator (laughs) uh, operator very seriously. And I'm watching this and I literally was like, did people used to get paid for that? Like I have been operating an elevator for free for years. Like a sucker. Like a fool. Well, I mean, it would have originated (laughs) back in the days when they were completely manual and you actually needed someone to stop at each floor. Um, And so I don't know what the actual reason is to have, I I guess it's sort of like a prestige. Yeah. You make it look like a, a fancy building that you have somebody, you don't even have to press the button. You get in and she, with her gloved hand presses uh, the buttons for you and wishes you a good day. And, yeah, I mean, this this is a world of, like, hat check girls and, uh, you know, the women in the building are all secretaries and stenographers. And, you know, this is a completely different, um, it's a completely different world in the way that it's designed from the way we have now. Although, of course, now an office environment is still the same in terms of the fact that there are tiers of power and, mm-hmm. and you know, the male versus female thing is probably not all that different, although you're more likely to see, like, a female lawyer or a manager or whatever. Um, I did like the way that she was very much into the married guy and wasn't really ashamed of that yeah. at all. And I also kind of liked the way that she kind of came around to Jack Lemon and the way that she did it was this long sort of process. And it wasn't like this sort of setup punch, like um, sort of obvious way of them sort of getting together. And even in the end, it's not like they, it wasn't that sort of Hollywood ending where it was like, oh, your biceps are huge. (laughs) Like it was very like they were, she kind of just came over and then they were just like talking and it was like their sort of love language. And it sort of like implied like, oh, they're going to get together. Well, it's also because it's not all about just like a romantic idea of love. It's also about, you know, finding a connection with somebody and also like finding some kind of peace in your life where it's like, maybe she does love Fred McMurray. But why is she going to spend her life fighting uphill? The guy is never going to leave his wife. He's always going to string you along or he's going to move on to the next one. As the secretary told her, you know, like you're the fifth in the line of blah, blah, blah. And Jack Lemon might not be everything she wants, but she's going to have a good life with him. He's, she's going to treat, he's going to treat her well. She won't have to live with her sister and her uh, cab driver husband anymore. You know, Billy Wilder was not, um, he, he wasn't a hopeless romantic. You know, he was a very cynical filmmaker. This is a man who barely escaped the Nazis and came to Hollywood and like he knew about life. And mm. so he wasn't going to write a story that was like airy fairy in terms of the way it talks about love. It was going to have, and there is, there is something like dark and, and, almost bitter at the center of this very like delightful movie that I, that I've always really loved. Well, I loved that. Um, <laughs> I love that the apartment was literally, so if anybody doesn't know what this movie is about, uh, the apartment is a sex layer. Uh, <laughs> that it's like an Airbnb uh, for affairs yeah. in the 1960s. And what I kind of enjoyed was like, I love how there were scenes where, you remember when that guy is getting out of the elevator and he like slaps Shirley MacLaine's ass yep. and then she like stands up for herself and she yep. like is like threatening him and like, I'll cut off your hand and stuff like that. When you watch something like that now, you literally are kind of just like, like, yeah, like 
I would have him, I would have taken that further. But back in the day, that was probably like, wow, good for her. Well, because I mean, that's the most she could do without losing her job, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's so crazy to me. That's why I love about old movies is it really gives you perspective. I I I truly think that a really great idea for like a comedy, like a female all female comedy, is to have the social etiquette of like 1950s and like the standards sure. of how women should be. And you have, you have that as dialogue in a movie that's set today, just to give people perspective of how fucking ridiculous it was. For sure. But it's also interesting to see how it connects to today, right? Because like right now we are talking about the fact that everyone has been fooled by this myth of meritocracy in the, in the American dream that like you work hard, you get the right education and you succeed. But in this movie, career advancement is very much uh, intertwined with something very corrupt, which is like he gets right. to the top floor by letting the guys above him use his apartment for fucking their mistresses. You never get the impression that he's particularly good at his job compared to everybody else. He's just punching right. cards for, for an insurance company, you know, and all those great shots of like the, the width of the room and like thousands of typewriters and everything. And, and as a migraine sufferer, the idea of being in a room with that many typewriters clickety-clacking all day, <laughs> like, it's an absolute nightmare for me. If you watch 9 to 5, you see that the women have those earplugs because of uh, because of that, you know, because back then the machines were all very noisy. So, uh, you know, it is interesting to think about how today we are talking about the fact that actually it's not about working hard and, and getting ahead. And to see that this movie from 60 years ago is insinuating the same thing. Yeah, I do find that sort of interesting, the way that you were kind of saying that um, the way that the director really just finds this sort of dark narrative mm -hmm. in sort of the brilliant post-war, like, look at our amazing skyscraper and how our industries are booming kind of thing. And you're right. Um, what I really liked about her performance in this movie is that, um, and this was something that I saw with... Uh, um, Oh my God, I'm like skipping around names. Who am I thinking of? A sweet bird of youth. Uh, Geraldine Page? Geraldine Page, mm -hmm. yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, what, I, what I liked about Geraldine Page is um, I just saw the movie Windows where she was like just this wreck of a human being. Right. And I kind of just liked the honesty of it. And frankly, I kind of feel like Shirley MacLaine was a little, it felt like a very modern performance for this time because it was like, she kind of was this like really sad broken used mm -hmm. person but she also kind of seemed like she had a lot of integrity which which i don't even know if that makes sense but no she's she a fully rounded human being and movies have a terrible habit of only ever allowing women to be like an idea of women uh yeah even from, uh, even from like the way women sometimes write them not just men and she is very complex and that's also particularly impressive because you know like i said post-war prosperity in the movies was always presented as a great thing. There's a lot of movies in the fifties, particularly ones that take place in the city where it's like the girl comes to the big city to find love and get a job. She works at a publishing company and then she meets a handsome blah, blah, blah. There's a movie with Joan Crawford called the best of everything, which is a good example of this or three coins in the fountain. And this movie is a sort of antidote to them in saying that actually these girls come to the city and put themselves at great risk of falling mm -hmm. into holes they might not get out of if they make the wrong move or they get involved with the wrong person or they fall for the wrong guy's line. And that actually, you know, if you're in New York and you're not super rich and super successful, you can see the cracks in the pavement. And, you know, mm -hmm. I find this movie still quite startling in that regard today, you know, when you watch it versus like The Devil Wears Prada. But um, if, mm -hmm. certainly for its time, it was... Um, and I think that had a lot to do with why it was so well appreciated. I, I do think it's brilliant. Like, I love the way the script works out. I love the the way it, all these interesting coincidences happen. Like, the way he figures out it's her by the broken mirror in her, um, you know, in mm -hmm. her little thing. Like, I love all that stuff in the script. But I think a lot of its appreciation had also to do with how shocking it was to people in a way that they found uh, impressive and with integrity. And they didn't feel, like, lectured at or insulted by no and that's that's a very that's a very fair point i mean okay listen i mean we we could probably talk about this movie for an hour oh i mean i have so... talked about this movie for years like I, it's yeah it's, yeah so you have to cut me off because i can just go yeah. on about it for days well i mean the performance by her was was really amazing mm -hmm. and I, I i feel like this type of performance from her um 
would be an example to actresses at the time of like how to play it. And I'm sure that Shirley MacLaine has probably had a very big influence on acting and on the way that they write female roles. For sure. Uh, especially during this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but just for time's sake, mm-hmm. I think that we should move on to um, our next nominee, uh, which this one was the one that I wanted to rip my fucking eyes out. Uh, Greer Garson okay. in Sunrise at Campobello. So I'm glad oh, it was that one because this is not a movie that I love, and I'm 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 sorry that this is your first introduction to her because Greer is the best. But this is not a movie oh, where you actor, see her. Sure. Uh, but this is not even her at her finest. You know, this is also very late in her career. She made her last film in 1967, which is only seven years after this. Although she lived right. a very long life, she lived to be like in her 90s or something. Um, well well okay so first of all um so she's playing eleanor roosevelt mm-hmm. frankly i think what was it eleanor roosevelt was famously like a secret lesbian let's look at that <laughs> let's see that i want to watch that i literally was waiting to, for some kind of like lesbian i was like let's have it yeah. i'm excited for it well i mean the movie is this. not about her she's the only one that gets no. a nomination from her but it's definitely not about her it's about him and i'm sure that ralph bellamy was expecting an oscar nomination you know, he had played the role yeah. on stage before making the movie, and it was like a big. Uh, this is also well into his career as well. He was nominated for an Oscar in like 1937. He lived until I think Pretty Woman was his last film. Um, but it's definitely oh. a showcase for him. It's not. It's not for her. But yeah. Well, this movie. Okay, first of all, like I actually have no idea what Eleanor Roosevelt sounds like, but this bitch sounded like fucking Bed Midler and Hocus Pocus. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? Yeah. She was like, you must only do the following things. I was like, oh my god, like the voice. Like I don't know what she sounded like, but it was great. Well, Greer Garson <laughs> like, did have a ridiculous accent. She was a very like, very British, you know, like very fine the right. thing is, if you go to the 40s and you watch her in Mrs. Miniver or Random Harvest or Julia Misbehaves, which is one of my favorites, um, she mm. is ridiculous. She's too much. She's over the top. But there's always something very warm and generous about her. And you cannot help but love her, even though you're never fully convinced that she's an actual human being. There's just something so yeah. grand about her. And it's it makes sense that she was so popular during the war because... She just represented what everyone wanted to put the world back together in order to become. You know what I mean? Right. Um, And she still has it in the 60s, although it's starting to look a little dated. And, you know, she doesn't she doesn't convince me that she's Eleanor Roosevelt at all. They give her those giant teeth in the front of her mouth to kind of make her look more (laughs) like her. That's not. And they also Grigarson stayed perfect looking till the end of her life. They gave her the uh, the eye lines. Those are that's all makeup. But Eleanor Roosevelt had a very. I mean, the rumors about her being a secret lesbian partly stem from the fact that, like, she just always looked very homely and careworn. And her accent was strong, but it was different. She was like a Eastern seaboard. She had that kind of, um, that very uh, JFK kind of accent. Um, yeah. And she was also a very was... interesting woman who accomplished the most amazing things that, like, no first lady had ever accomplished before. Uh, and you don't get a sense of that in this movie because most of it no. takes place sort of at the beginning of when she started to become the Eleanor Roosevelt that, you know, influenced the world. Well, uh, okay, listen, I, I'm just going to say one more example and then I'm just going to move on. But literally, just <laughs> she literally sounded like Julia Child and she looked like Mrs. Doubtfire. Like there were so many things that were I was I couldn't handle For her. Sure. She was like a caricature. And anybody listening, so Sunrise at Campobello is about um, Teddy. No, it's about, was it about FDR? No, it was Teddy Roosevelt who FDR, had. Yes, yeah. Teddy was his uncle. Yeah. Teddy was his uncle. No, she, she was, was his was cousin, about FDR. Actually. Yeah. Okay, so this was about yeah. Franklin Roosevelt, and he had polio, and it would—it's basic—it's it, basically like a two and a half hour nap, and <laughs> at the end, uh, everyone's cheering for him because he is standing up with crutches, yep. and um, she, Greer Garson, is basically uh, Eleanor Roosevelt is basically like playing this kind of more supporting role than mm-hmm. a lead, yep. and she's the matriarch of the family, and everything is about. Um, her husband and everything is about getting him well and managing only really the daughter because all the other boys seemed kind of just like, Hey, pa, yeah, I love totally. you, pa. Leave and then Beaver, the yeah. girl was like such a little bitch. Yeah. And it was just like, 
Oh, I, I actually, I had to watch this movie over the course of three days. Yeah, it's not, and like I've watched it twice now and someone, you know, please no one ever make me watch it again. You know, it's not, no. it's not terrible, but it's also, it's the kind of thing that was really popular at the time, you know, like a stage play transferred to film that hasn't really been made more cinematic. It's, it's there so that people in small towns can go see a great play basically. And it, it sort of, it, yeah. the way it plays out, like you can practically see the lip of the stage where like the audience is. And it's not particularly exciting. I don't find a lot of the really heavy dialogue scenes to be all that interesting. It's not, it's not quite Aaron Sorkin on the West Wing. It is about the fact, it, it is, it takes place before he became president. It takes place in, from the point at which he first got ill to the point that he decided that he was going to accomplish whatever he wanted to accomplish, no matter what. And that's very impressive. But yeah, it's not scintillating drama and like it was a bit of no. a, a slog to get through it a second time. And actually the performance that I really enjoy the most in this film um, is his mother just because she's the most interesting <laughs> antagonist because she's this Victorian who has these very, very set ideas of how someone of her class yeah. should behave and they're always butting heads with her and, and, and she manages to make that a real person even though that character could be quite a shrew. Um, the best I can say about Greer Garson in this movie, I mean, I think she got nominated because they were paying tribute to this veteran who they've always admired and loved. This was her yeah. seventh nomination. And also because... And it was a good performance. Yeah, because she knew exactly how to behave on camera. You know, she has a she has an ease to her. You never feel like she's reaching for anything. You never feel like she's overdoing it in any way. She just glides through the movie. And again, you know, always this genuine emotional... Uh, reality to her like when when he falls ill she genuinely believes like you genuinely believe that she's really worried about her husband you know mm -hmm. um but well she definitely does have that sort of like a nurturing sort of spirit mm -hmm. the way that she is portraying the character um it's just that uh the parents seemed so much more uh, like reasonable where the children seemed like kind of like they were not even part of the family. Like right. I, I felt like they just weren't, they didn't really have like a good connection. Like it just sort of seemed like Greer Garson and um, what's his, whoever played the guy that sounded like Sean Connery. Ralph the Bellamy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He um, it, like, they, they seem very like high society, like mm -hmm. classy people. And the kids were like the maids smell like poor people. <laughs> like they yeah. were just really weird yeah. like that. I, well, I, I mean, parenting was a different ball game back then too. Our notions of parenting are a very modern concept, you know, like they're from a class in a time when you sent your kids to boarding school for 13 years and you met them when they were adults, you know? So, well, they, but she was, but also at the same time, like they were also very strict back then. She yeah. just sort of seemed like more like, I don't think that you'll be... I mean, I'm not going to fucking do it, but listen, I was barely <laughs> clinging to consciousness by the end of this film. I really oh, can't sure. comment on it much. Yeah, he's I'm also sure in... Um, he's in Rosemary's Baby a few years after this as well. People probably know him from that. He was the Dr. Oh. Saperstein. In that. Oh, yeah. I need to rewatch this movie. I, I haven't seen it in years. Oh, so um, well, if you do but, a Best Supporting Actress for that year, you'll watch it then. She... Well, I... What was... She was in Birth of a Nation. Um, Who? Uh... The one that won um Ruth Gordon? Ruth Gordon. Was she? Yeah. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's old. Um, well, I mean, I but, know that, but. <laughs> but listen, I got nothing else to add about Greer yeah, Garson's no, performance I'm... in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> if we can, we can just move on. Okay, so let's talk about um Deborah Kerr Car. in Is it Carr? Yeah, Scottish, so it's Carr. Oh, wow. Okay, well, you know what? I'm just going to say Kerr. No, um, yeah, I'm going to call you Caddy. Wait, but it is spelt like Kerr. It is. Mm, okay, you know what? Then I'm not going to edit it out. Okay. Okay, so uh, the, Deborah Carr in The Sundowners. Mm -hmm. Actually, I, I looked this up online. Um, a, a Sundowner actually was somebody that showed up like before the sun went down asking for food and they left before the sun came That's up. That's right, before yeah. Before they could work. So this was actually not titled correctly <laughs> yeah also, this, this took place in australia and those accents sometimes yeah. were australian sometimes were British. all over the place like, including hers hers is the oh, yeah. hers is the best of all the non-aussies in that film but it's still spotty yes. at times yeah for sure um she based oh so deborah carr commented in her 1986 biography that she should have won mm -hmm. this oscar uh, because she had been nominated six times for a lead role and up until that time that was the longest 
that that had happened without yeah, a win. Yeah, she was like basically the biggest loser for women uh, and remained... Her and Thelma Ritter were like the biggest losers for women until last year when Glenn Close didn't win her seventh Oscar nomination. No, Geraldine yet. Page. Or Geraldine Page was nominated like seven or eight times before she won. Right, right. But I mean, but she did win. So like up until last yeah. year, Deborah and uh, Thelma Ritter were like the biggest losers for women. It's so crazy. But what I actually, I, okay, so I actually really enjoyed this movie. And I thought that Deborah Carr in the film, she really stood up to her husband a lot. And she like yeah. was, it was kind of just refreshing. Cause I, a lot of these movies are, are just so they don't do women any favors. And like, when you watch it, it's just so sexist and, and it's so cringy to watch. But in this movie, I mean, obviously there were cringy moments for sure, mm-hmm. but like in this movie, um, she sort of seemed like this, uh, at first kind of hopeless and then decided that she wanted change in her life and she was standing up to her husband and she was like, she was becoming the change that she wanted to be. It was a very refreshing kind of role to see. Had you never seen her in anything before? Never. Because okay. Deborah Kerr is like one of my absolute favorite all-time old movie actresses. There's always right. a sense of, she's always classy and she's a lady, but it's never prim or cold with her. You do get the impression yeah. that she's like a real person who... Like you, um, Anne Michaels in her book *Fugitive Pieces*, one of the characters says, "You know, Deborah Carr seems like someone you can sleep with and then talk with, talk to a lot after." And that's a terrible way to put it, but it's true in that like butter would melt in her mouth. She does come across as like a sensual person, despite the fact that she also clearly has like breeding and class. And always there's like this intelligent no nonsense to her, and in there's very few exceptions with her in terms of movies where she plays someone that I just admire and whose world I just want to be in. I love her very much. And a friend of mine wrote the last movie she was in and worked with her and said that everything you ever wanted Deborah Carr to be, she actually was in person. She really was this like gracious, kind, funny, amazing, amazing lady. Um, And then I asked him Uh, questions for like four hours. The poor guy really regretted telling (laughs) me. Um, so, and this is, this was, this, I hadn't seen this movie since I was a kid. So I really enjoyed rewatching this cause I barely remembered it. And the spotty accents are really the only major flaw I can find with it. Otherwise I find it a very like lovely, warm, uh, story yeah. in which like the stakes are real, like their poverty is real, their struggle is real, but at the same time, there's so much humor and, you know, the coming together and falling apart of this family, just trying to keep itself cohesive throughout the entire thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that, I think she felt she deserved to win partly. She probably had a really great experience working on the movie. She always particularly loved working with Fred Zinneman. She said that he always brought something out of her that no, no other director ever did. Um, he also directed her in From Here to Eternity, which was the movie that basically, um, changed everyone's idea of her. She had been just been playing prim English ladies up until that point. And that movie really made her, um, a sex symbol and everything. Um, Oh, wow. For me, it's not my favorite performance of hers, um, okay. but considering how the evening went, it's like, fuck, just give her an award. Jesus Christ. Like, she's been killing it in movies. She was a huge star. Very, right. very much admired. It's like, just give her a goddamn Oscar. And, you know, she never won. Yeah. She got an honorary one in the 90s. And if you haven't seen it, YouTube the clip of her winning because it makes me cry every time. It's She's so lovely. Um, oh, Oh, we should play it now and make you cry. Um, <laughs> but there are so but... many, I mean, I, you know, again, not my favorite performance of hers, but there are some really killer moments in it. You know, that part where she's at the train station and she sees that really well-dressed classy girl in the train. And then she longs for another life and she kind of puts her life in perspective. Yeah. I love that. Scene. I love that scene. I love that there's so much feeling and, and depth in it. Yeah. I love nonverbal scenes where you can just convey exactly how you're feeling with just like, with just batting an eyelash. For sure. I, I yeah. love that kind of stuff. And um, just talking about the accents though, I mean like really, <laughs> well, like yeah. at one point they started talking like pirates. I was like, what's happening? For sure. and, and then Robert Mitchum in particular, like he's supposed to be originally Irish, but I think he is still Australian. And I'm like, that guy changed his mind every day about what accent he was doing. I love Robert Mitchum. He was such a, like he had such a sexy presence on screen, but like, I, you know, he didn't just, he didn't yeah. it was there but then he was like kind of not at all like i i know what you mean but also like really like all of the women at this time were at the mercy of their husbands sure. and what i mean by that is like it's it's 
it's very kind of heartbreaking to watch that because basically, um, you know, I mean, not going into too, too many details, but like I know people whose uh, father or their husband has just gambled away like a fuck ton of their money yeah. and they're screwed and they can't pay their bills. And this, uh, the lead character had that problem where he would just gamble away like all of his money and she couldn't do anything about it. And yeah. And the only something... woman in the movie that seems self-satisfied is Glynis Johns as the innkeeper who, uh, mm-hmm. who was nominated as well for best supporting actress and um, is, uh, you know, not married. She, and she manages to uh, f- uh, flirt her way in and out of relationships. And at one point even wants Peter Ustinov to commit, but you don't get the impression that she's devastated when it doesn't work out. Yeah. There was this sort of, bleak but hopeful tone to the entire movie yeah well i've been to australia there's sort of a bleak but hopeful tone to when you're there like it's it's the emptiest country i've ever been in you know what i mean like it and it it still looks like that everything you see in this movie it still looks like that like it it's so beautiful but there's always like if you if you go outside the main cities there's like there's just one little colonial bar in the middle of nothing and you can just see flat land as far as the eye can see, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's ominous. Um, it, it's a country that really demands a lot of you physically, but it's also awe inspiring and like everyone should go at least once. I, I really loved it. I'd be curious too, but mm-hmm. what I found sort of interesting was that the, the, there were, there was a lot of kind of duality in, in the movie that I, I really did enjoy sort of the whole, you know, it's, it's bleak, but it's also hopeful, but also they kind of seemed like they were misfits, but they also seemed like kind of wholesome mm-hmm. and grounded. And I also kind of felt like, um, what I really liked about Deborah Carr's sort of performance specifically, not only like her strength, and the way that she stood up to her husband and stuff like that, but it was sort of like, she was honest about her fear of like being judged by people yes. and why she didn't want to settle down and sort of just like the honesty of her care. Like there was just a lot of like strength behind her character. For sure. and, and I really liked the way that she, I really liked the way that she played it. And I, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed her in this film. Me too. I, the only, the only thing that kind of um, takes it down a peg for me is that I don't believe that she is a woman who grew up in this class and in this world. Like she, <laughs> Deborah Carr clearly went to university. You know what I mean? Like she has that yeah. polish to yes. her and no matter how many frumpy dresses you put on her, uh, you can't take that away from her. But, you know, the movies tend not to, when they cast stars in roles like this, they tend to do that a lot. And especially in the 50s and 60s, you always had glamorous movie stars playing hard scrabble people and not being particularly convincing at it. So that's not even mm. something I would necessarily criticize her for. Again, because she does bring such... Um, emotional uh, strength to the role, which they all do, which is why that this movie that doesn't really have like a, a like a beginning, middle, and end plot. It's very like picaresque, but mm-hmm. it keeps you there because you you have such um, uh, intense feelings for everyone in this family, and you do want things to turn out for them. And by the time she almost gets that house, like it's just devastating to me the way it, it works out in the end. It is kind of. But this is that's that whole bleak but hopeful thing mm-hmm. because when they don't actually get also I it, the movie went really sea biscuit for a minute and I don't know if I like that <laughs> yeah. but whatever yeah. like she like at the end just decided that the deal wasn't happening I thought that was kind of funny yeah. and then they kind of just leave and again it's bleak but hopeful you're like oh they'll be okay yeah like they'll be fine I I mean I, I, I just hope that the people ending. rediscover this movie because I think it's one of those classics that's not talked about nearly as much the way other movies from the time are. And uh, Mm. I think it's something that should be played like on TV at Christmas or whatever. Like, I think it's something that people should watch more regularly than they do. Well, what was the line that she said that I loved where she was like, I don't want you to buy this house because you're doing it out of spite and I don't want to live with a martyr. Yeah. Yeah, she, and I'm like, she oh, understands what it actually means to be happy. You know, like she wants the house because she wants the stability, but she also knows that if she makes him go against his own desires or even his own judgment, that it won't be stable because she'll just be pulling him out of bars every night and then they'll lose the house because he'll piss away the mortgage money or something, you know, like she, yeah. she, she's um, cautious, but optimistic basically in terms of the way she approaches what she wants, because she knows that it's not all about her, you know, in a way that he doesn't necessarily know because, you know, he's a man and he's been set up to believe that. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, okay. So then let us switch over mm-hmm. to um, our second last nominee. And I'm going to get you to correct me again. That's right. Uh, Melina Mercury. Mercury. Yeah. Yeah. In Never on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And 
Okay. So let's. Okay. So this movie is, if anybody does not know what this movie, it is a Greek movie mm-hmm. that is basically like summertime with Catherine Hepburn combined with Pretty Woman, Julia Roberts. <laughs> it basically glamorizes hooking. Sure. If I'm being completely honest with you, it actually is fucking hilarious. Yeah. And it won. Uh, she won Best Actress at the Cannes Film Festival. That's right. Yeah. And um, she is applauded as she walks through the streets yep. by all of the sailors <laughs> because being a hooker is so fun and random. And I was so hoping, and I don't I don't even know if this needs to, it's just in my mind, this was just supposed to be this big, exaggerated, ridiculous comedy, like scary movie mm-hmm. or scary movie too. Because literally at one point, <laughs> the sailors in the sea start like blowing their horns and a whole boatload of sailors because she's been labeled as a friendly port. Right. She comes running and she's like, don't worry boys. I'll be that. Yeah. It's not a Greek accent. I'm sorry, but I'm just saying like it was a lot. Well, I mean, because uh, it's a port town. So of course, if you are a sex worker, the, the ships coming in means business, right? Uh, as it does yeah, for like, oh, well, the whole street of all those girls who live does in she those... do the whole boat like no 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 but it's uh it's uh it's a plum day for her when uh the, the sailors come in because as one guy says doesn't he say like they've been nine months at sea without any relief or whatever uh 20 yeah. 21 weeks 21 weeks at sea yeah which is a long time unless uh some of them are gay and probably all of them are but anyway um <laughs> Yeah, this is the movie that I've seen the most amount of times on this list. I've seen this movie a hundred million times. It's a it's a really uh, deep favorite of mine. A lot of that does have to do with the <laughs> fact that my parents are Greek and they mm-hmm. came here in the late 60s. So this movie sort of takes place in the Greece that they left behind, which makes okay. me feel very nostalgic. It takes place in Piraeus, which is the port town. Like that's at the bottom of the peninsula and then you move up and then you're in Athens. They're sort of connected. Uh, Piraeus is like many port towns. It's very industrial. It's very, you know, it's uh, hookers and um, uh, uh, (laughs) and, and ship dockyard workers and all that stuff, you know. But it's also, it's very beautiful. Uh, at the time this movie was made, my dad had his business in Piraeus. He was um, a scrap metal. I think he had like a scrap metal business of some kind. He says that he interrupted filming of this movie because they were shooting at a bar he liked to hang out at. Oh. Um, I don't know. My, I always take my dad's stories with a grain of salt because he's a bit of a tall tale teller or he remembers things he li- the uh, way he likes to. Um, of and, my dad does the same thing. <laughs> right. And he ended up getting into a fist fight with the guy in the movie that plays Yorgos. You know, the guy from The Exorcist? Um, Tito's Vandis is the actor's name. What? Yeah, he's the guy. I remember Damien Karras has that relative who says you need to take care of your mother. That's him who plays the dopey. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. So anyway, my dad says oh, he got God, into I a fist fight with him because he was yelling at them for filming in his favorite bar. My dad also never liked Melina Mercury because she was like a real staunch left wing socialist. And my dad is not. So, uh, you know, he just had <laughs> okay. a lot. And she was she was a very controversial figure in Greece. She was already very famous in Greece at this point because yeah. her father was a member of parliament. Her grandfather was the mayor of Athens. So she came from a notable family. She started acting in the 50s, I think, in Greek theater and then started acting in movies. And then this movie made her like internationally famous. And um, and actually it's it's produced independently because Jules Dessin asked a Greek studio to co-finance it. And they said no, because they didn't want to work with her and they missed out on profiting from like the most popular Greek movie that it was ever made basically. Wow. Um, and her, I mean, I, I just love her in this movie. I find her so like mercurial, no pun intended. And um, there's such a genuine joy to the way she performs everything. And she's so funny and instinctive. I don't know if the dialogue in Greek comes across as funny in English, because I find most of the subtitle translations I've seen are not great. Um, okay. But it's notable that like, she's 40 years old when she makes this movie. She's not pretty, but she's really hot. Um She's really, I actually thought she kind of looked like a European Joan Crawford. Well, I mean, I think she's beautiful. I don't think she's like classically pretty and she certainly wasn't seen. So at the time, um, Susan Sarandon said in an interview that this was one of the most influential movies on her when she was young, because she'd never Mm. seen a woman who was so unconventionally attractive in a movie before. Yes, Um, that's very true. Yeah. And, and then the movie was a huge hit you know, it made Greek music very popular. The, the song that she sings, won an Oscar partly because they did an English translation of it. That was like a huge hit single. 
Um, First foreign film to win Best Original That's song, right. Actually. And I, I think it was the only one until The Motorcycle Diaries. Um, and mm. and then thematically, I find this movie very interesting. You know, Jules Dessen was a Hollywood filmmaker who left America because he, was, he refused to name names uh, for the HUAC. He was blacklisted. He went to Europe. He made Rafifi in France. And then he made this movie in Greece because he was dating her at the time. And he wrote this movie for her. And it's mm. interesting that he is this... Um, he is accused of being a communist, which is why he leaves America. But he makes this movie that sort of criticizes people who are too strong on their ideologies. He has this obsession of turning her into a better person by making her care about art and literature instead of... This... Oh, wait, wait, wait. Do you mean whenever he was trying to de her? Basically, yeah. Um, yeah. But this idea that, like, um, she's all about sensual pleasures. You know, if I eat a fish, it makes me happy. If I blub, if the sun is shining, I am happy. And he ties her hooking into this as well because she is... Of, and, of course, it's a movie, so this is completely ridiculous, that, like, she only goes with the men she wants to. She charges no prices. She just wants to make sure she likes you because she gets this sensual enjoyment out of uh, you know, basically having sex with the fruit seller and then she doesn't have to pay at the fruit market and blah, blah, blah. It's very, it's, AKA you know, grinder. it's totally, <laughs> it's ridiculous, but it's also like, it's interesting that his idea is that he knows better. And because he knows better, he believes that whatever he does is right, which is kind of colonialism, right? Like you guys don't know how to and live. Mansplaining. Right. A lot totally. Of mansplaining. <laughs> and, and that his actually, the way he ex- tries to quote unquote expand her mind is another form of exploitation. And I love that in the end, he's actually the one that gets schooled. He's the one that has his mind expanded in um, understanding that things aren't, that that sticking to just what you think is right on paper isn't necessarily real life. And that she doesn't, she's not bad at living her life just because she's not living it the way you think she should, you know. So this movie works on multiple levels for me because it does make me think about a lot of things, but I also just find it so funny and so enjoyable. And then I'm also watching like my people. So I I get a lot of enjoyment out of that because they're at their most beautiful in this film. Well, she had a lot of really, really great sort of energy Mm -hmm. and she was so good at connecting with everybody in that sort of like Latina kind of way like she you know what I mean like it was very romantic and very intense and very she was kind of like a like a I wouldn't necessarily say that she's a very well-rounded character because she was a little like two-dimensional than like three-dimensional because it was kind of like I'm happy now and then I'm sad now and I'm happy now I'm sad now and it was like okay and then your Greek um, accent is Russian now. It was Italian. No, I know. I was like, I don't. I need to. We're I need working to hear, around I need to hear around it. the world with Kyle. <laughs> I know it's because I think of Sigourney Weaver in um, in uh, Heartbreakers. But anyway, um, when my favorite, I think my favorite scene though was when she had her birthday and invited over all of her Johns, aka gangbang. Mm-hmm. And then she had that street organ with the crank, yep. and it had like her headshots all over yep, it. Yep. And she, it brought me back to like Gloria Swanson Sunset Boulevard, where it's just this big dramatic like drag queen moment totally. where she's like singing, and everybody has to be so like yep. wow. And I feel like a lot of gay men would watch this movie and they'd be like, oh, like I wish I was her. Like just this sort of she was just such a character, and it was it was so silly for me and it was really funny for me and um frankly like if i'm being completely honest with you i do have a hard time watching old foreign language films and honestly i really liked this movie there were some parts here and there that i kind of tuned out but i really liked i'm glad yeah because i just like i said i find it delightful i i mean i kind of wish that i was her and that i love her joy for life i don't know that i would like it if i only had greek men to choose from that sounds like my idea of hell (laughs) but um but i do love i mean she's she's an uncompromising kind of character and you know he wrote it for her knowing her because he was with her they ended up getting married they stayed together until she died um, and, and she really was a, a challenging and uncompromising figure in real life. Although of course she was to my knowledge, never a sex worker. Um, she got kicked out of Greece in the late sixties when the military dictatorship took over. She lost her Greek citizenship and lived in France for about eight years and then, um, came back in the late seventies and throughout the eighties actually stopped acting because she became the ministry minister of culture, uh, in Greece. And if you go there, like some, everywhere you go, something is named after her, like a square or a theater or a, 
you know, um, she died in the mid nineties, uh, at the age of 70 something. And if you see photos of like the coffin being taken off the plane, there's just millions of people everywhere. Like there were a lot of people, wow. who, you know, she was a big deal for the arts community as well as in politics as well. Um, and this movie just shows her off at her finest. She made a few other movies, but this is like, this is uh, definitely her at her best. And also, if you go to Athens, you'll still see men cranking those. They're called Laternas, the music, or the organ grinder thing. Um, mm-hmm. You still see men playing those uh, when you walk down the street and uh, they taking coins for them and stuff. It's a very uh, old world kind of Middle Eastern uh, form of entertainment. Yeah, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well then let's talk about the winner so let's talk about elizabeth taylor in butterfield eight so the famous line was that shirley mclean said that she lost to a tracheotomy (laughs) so if anybody listening doesn't know what that means eddie fisher was debbie reynolds's husband Mm -hmm. aka princess leia's dad and he had an affair with elizabeth taylor and uh there was basically elizabeth taylor was a big dirty whore for Mm -hmm. uh, America. And it was, how dare she? And at the time, movies had a morality clause that like, if a character such as Elizabeth Taylor in Butterfield 8 existed, basically she had to be punished Mm -hmm. because we must punish the whores. So um, they also have to like veil her, her job too. Right. Because in this movie, we know that she's a call girl, but she's a quote unquote model. Like that's how she makes her money. And I don't know if that's in the book. I, okay, well, before we get into mm-hmm. that, I will just say that um, she was, this movie mm-hmm. was a vehicle to slut shame her for two hours. <laughs> and yeah. she didn't want to do it. Nope. And she, by contract, had to do one more movie with MGM. And she essentially was forced into doing this movie mm-hmm. that she didn't want to do. Yeah. And through every scene that you watch in this movie... She is seething with rage and it just <laughs> Well, and blends. refused to talk to the director throughout the entire filming just because she was so oh. mad that she had to make this movie. Because her original plan... I don't blame her. No, I don't blame her either. Um, the original plan was that she was going to retire from acting after making Cat on a Hot Tin Roof because she wanted to basically just raise Mike Todd's kids. And, you know, she'd been working since she was nine years old. She was done with it. Right. And then Mike Todd dies in a plane crash. Um, he had made a verbal agreement with MGM that she would retire after Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. And because it was only verbal, after he died, MGM was like, sorry, but on paper, you're still contracted to us, which is why, you know, they made her make this one last movie. Um, And then, of course, uh, Mike Todd's best friend was Eddie Fisher, and Carrie Fisher has that wonderful line where she says, as soon as my dad found out that Mike had died, he ran to Elizabeth's side and slowly made his way to her front. And uh, so they're married by the time this movie is made. They, the the studio wanted someone else for his role, but they forced, um, she forced them to hire Eddie because she's like, if I have to be in this shitty movie, I might as well have my husband around all the time. Um, And I think, I don't think he was like a friend, the nerdy friend. Yeah. And never made another movie again. He was mostly a singer uh, in his uh, career. But, uh, oh, uh, by the way, anybody listening, Butterfield 8, this is not explained at all. I actually had to Google this. Butterfield 8 is the, is the company, basically the agency that uh, contacts Elizabeth with jobs. It's her exchange number. Because back then, phone numbers weren't entirely numbers. They were a name and a number. You would call the operator and you would tell them which exchange you wanted to be connected with. That's what it is. Oh, yeah. it's okay. I I don't even I still don't even understand that. But listen, let's just oh, go. Let's you know, when you talk about like old movies showing social mores and everything, technology is fascinating too. Watch movies and like watch Pillow Talk, where she has to share a party line with Rock Hudson, and you're like, what is going on? Because back then, you not everybody could have their own phone line. You sometimes had to share your phone line with strangers. Like things to do with phones and stuff like that in the old days are, you know, quite confusing. And I and Butterfield Aid is also an I, example of this. Yeah. Well, okay, so there are a couple things that I want to mention here that I literally thought were 
literal laugh out loud moments that I, I just, I couldn't believe. Well, first of all, I, just before we even get into that, I have an insane amount of respect for Elizabeth Taylor for actually doing this movie mm-hmm. and actually like really going for it. And the fact that she won an Oscar for it, that is kind of bittersweet, but the way that I personally see it is that is a win for her because it was kind of like a fuck you to the industry. Oh, by the way, the reason why she lost to a trache- tracheotomy, anybody listening is because she, uh, um, got pneumonia mm-hmm. and then they had to do an emergency tracheotomy yeah. and because she almost died america was like oh no but we actually do love her don't die don't die and then well america like, always they... had a lot to say about her but they always paid close attention to her she was one of those figures you know the kind of scarlet o'hara where like everyone criticizes them but secretly they love them and are fascinated by them this movie mm-hmm. was like the biggest hit uh, one of the biggest hits of the year like everyone had plenty to say about her affair but they had to be there to see it happen you know what i mean um, oh, a hundred. It's like watching a trainer. I mean, I'm sorry, listen, but that whole, like anything with like the Kardashians, I don't watch the keeping up with the Kardashians, right. but like if, if um, my friend Leah, she like loves reality TV. And if I'm like at her place and I'm visiting her, mm-hmm. if that shit's on, like I, it's like, I can't, like, I need to be focused on it, even though I'm oh, like, sure. I can't stand And it. Madonna's a similar one too. Like people have always had plenty to say about her, but anytime I've ever like put a Madonna concert on and my, during my mom's friends parties, the friends were always like suddenly in the room watching the entire thing. Like some people just hold your attention no matter how you feel about them. I mean, and I got to say, no matter what I say about this movie, I love Elizabeth Taylor. I drive people crazy talking about Elizabeth Taylor. I, I really admire the survivor. I really admire her sense of humor. I really admire what a good actor she was. You, she never embarrassed herself on film. She was so technically good at being in front of a camera Mm -hmm. because she'd started doing it from when she was young, that she never really gives a bad performance. It's more like, the role isn't always up to snuff. And this movie, I mean, it's basically a cheesy remake of Room at the Top with Lawrence Harvey in the same role again, mm. with the same ending, the car crash at the end. And, you know, you find out that she wins an Oscar for it, and you're like, were all the voters, like, contestants on Drag Race? Like, she you know, wakes up in his apartment with her makeup and hair perfect. She writes in lipstick on the mirror. Like, it's so campy. And... She spends oh. the whole movie basically pissed off, but she also wants to date him. And there's a subplot involving a fur coat. And you're like, what piece of crap am I watching? <laughs> like this movie is oh, like, I loved it. I know, but it, it's lovable because it's so ridiculous, but it's like so ridiculous. And everything no, is my so favorite beautiful. Was... And, and she, she can be in her fucking slip and she still looks like a, a total movie star. You know, she's so pretty. Yeah, no, but I think my favorite was there were a couple parts that made me laugh out loud. So whenever she says to her mom, like, Mama, face it, I was the slut of all time. She slaps her across, the mother slaps her across the face. And then she looks at her in the most like after school special way. And she's like, if only you'd done that before. And it's like, (laughs) what? So abuse your kids and they won't become whores. And then the other part was like when she's talking about like turning her life around and not being a whore anymore. She's like, you'll be able to look at me without wishing that I'd never been born. And you're like, okay, that's another yikes one. But I think my favorite was when she goes to the motel where a lot of like the, you mm-hmm. know, I can't go to the apartment. So you go to the motel right, yeah. and then like, yeah, you're right. Paper yeah. Remember there was that woman Kay Medford. That owned- she plays Barbara yes. Streisand's mom in Funny Girl, and she was nominated for an Oscar for that. Oh, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. So basically, in this movie, mm-hmm. she plays the former slut yeah. who is warning Elizabeth Taylor. She's like, oh, you know, it's so amazing. I, what did she say? Live it up. And then one day you will own a heavily mortgaged roadside motel. <laughs> yeah. I want to die. Yeah, because and then Elizabeth like Taylor's a, like, she oh. was a vaudeville performer in her young, she was a vaudeville and like, she was basically a Ziegfeld girl in her younger days, which is what movies usually have as the cover for a girl being a sex worker. This is one of the few ones where she's like a model and her modeling jobs involve her being given dresses to wear in nightclubs because, you know, women mm. will see them and say, where did you know they'll basically go looking for that dress it's a very interesting uh way of promoting although it's basically the same as women actresses wearing dresses on the red carpet now right um but uh, yeah i just I, liz is so good but i feel she did win because of the tracheotomy because she had literally died like she was actually pronounced dead and there was headlines pr- printed that said she was dead and then she was revived 
I think if you took that away, though, you could also say that she won because it's the most Oscar-y of all the nominees this year. You know, she's playing a hooker, which is, or a sex worker, I should say, <laughs> which is a very, it's Oscar bait. Shirley Jones, the same year, wins for playing a prostitute in Elmer Gantry. Um, she gets to have a lot of fiery rages and tempests. Uh, and the other nominees are a lot more subtle or people don't quite know what to do with them. Or in the case of Melina Mercury, they're foreign. And so they should just be grateful that they're even there. Um, but also though, to the point of the most like Oscar sort of um, role, I mean, I don't really know if I would necessarily agree with that because this movie, like you were just saying, really does read a bit campy, yeah. but what I thought was kind of interesting for this movie is that normally they're always like punishing the woman, but in this particular case, the man the movie is literally like an after school school special on like a Christian channel oh, for sure. <laughs> and like he with better is like, yeah, no, but like, he's like literally like a failure as a man mm-hmm. because like he cheated and everything sucks for him. Mm-hmm. And, um, I literally just this whole movie to me was was so funny and I have so much respect for Elizabeth Taylor for even doing this because I think my favorite line from the movie was when she's driving really fast and then a cop pulls her over and there's supposed to be this like amazing metaphor where he says don't try to drive your troubles away because the sun will be there tomorrow and I was like what the fuck <laughs> does that mean like yeah. this whole movie was so hilarious to me but i'm being honest when i say that i thought all of the other movies were actually pretty funny too the only serious movie in my opinion was the apartment yeah the rest of them were all kind of ridiculous yeah and on the note of like elizabeth being admirable the way you say that like you admire her for doing this the thing about elizabeth taylor and one of the things i always love about her is she always showed up there's never i'm sure maybe there's stories but like i've never heard any stories about the fact that she was difficult or even late you know she had a lot of personal problems she had a very tempestuous love life she had a lot of substance abuse problems throughout her life she was ill a lot you know she had she um injured her back when she made national velvet when she was a kid and it it, Mm -hmm. it made her addicted to painkillers forever and she was always like falling apart for one reason or another physically she always showed up for work and she always did her job and you never see her phoning a performance in no matter how terrible the movie is and i've always loved that about her that she was always a pro and she stayed one till the end of her life um and the thing that sort of is bullshit about her winning an Oscar for this movie is that it comes at the time at a time when she was starting to actually be admired for being an actress and not just a pretty mm-hmm. face. She got raves for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. She got raves for Suddenly Last Summer. And when this movie mm-hmm. came out, it was seen as sort of a step back in her career that she was in this um, lesser film in this rather two dimensional role. So then she wins an Oscar for it. And I can see why people were like, what? And the thing that is saddest for me is the fact that she never believed that she was being honored for her work, which at that point, you know, she had started to really care about being a good actor uh, after growing up. And it kind of sucks that you win the top prize, but you know that you're only getting it out of sympathy and not because anyone's actually amazed by your work. So it must've meant a lot when she won the second Oscar for who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, because that was definitely them saying, you know, look at you, you've really done a kick-ass job. No, I, I, I agree with that. So let's go ahead and reveal who we think should have won. Great. So if you could do the honors oh. and begin. I think the Oscar should have gone to. Shirley MacLaine in The Apartment. Mm. I okay. absolutely adore this performance. I always have. I first saw this movie when I was a kid. And I think she should have won for all the reasons we've already stated, which is that She's funny and she's admirable, but she also really breaks your heart. She reminds me of a lot of the people I've known throughout my life. A lot of the girls I worked with in my travails in the office world throughout my life. And she, you know, getting three-dimensional women in movies is rare, especially in old movies. And there's just no other character like her. I think it's one of the finest characters written in the 60s. And I um, I just love watching her wordless or or when she does her monologues or whatever i just love watching her throughout this entire performance i think she's so bewitching Mm -hmm. and again i think it's a very unconventional role in a way that a lot of the other roles are more conventional i love deborah carr i do wish she would have won an oscar but this is not the movie i would have given it to her for so i definitely go for shirley 
Okay. So, um, okay. Uh, okay, well, I think that the Oscar should have gone to... Elizabeth Taylor and Butterfield 8. Well, because, look at you. Yeah, well, it was either going to be um, Elizabeth Taylor or Melina Mercury mm. because I really loved Melina's role because I just read it as a comedy mm-hmm. and I really just thought that um, how sexual she mm-hmm. was in the subject matter was just kind of interesting for the time and it was really fun but like literally elizabeth taylor in this movie the fact that this bitch had to do that movie and she still took it seriously anyway but you can tell that she's seething with rage in every (laughs) single scene i have such a respect for that because frankly i'd be like just fucking sue me i'm not doing this movie you guys are awful (laughs) and you're literally slut shaming my life (laughs) into my career and the fact that she won an oscar i see that as a victory for her as a positive um i like shirley mclean a lot but it's just elizabeth taylor in this movie i legitimately enjoyed this movie to the point where i would actually watch it again because it made me laugh so much it was just so i mean no one's ever put it that way and i uh i thank you for giving me an alternate perspective on it because it's just it's not a film i've ever really liked but i totally i mean and listen you'll never do anything good for elizabeth taylor that i will disagree with i mean i I really, really do love her. I think she's one of the greatest movie stars who ever lived. And I would also sure. say that one of the things that is pleasurable about watching her act is that there's almost always a rage in her performances. You know, like there's nothing I love more than when Elizabeth Taylor gets pissed off in a movie. I find it right. just magnificent. So to watch her be this angry with such great eye makeup at the same time and those beautiful yes. bouffant hairdos and that car that she can barely fit into. I'm like, how small did they make cars back then? <laughs> You know, the whole thing, it's, it's, um, it, it really is quite something. And also, uh, just the fact that, like, the ending to the movie, like, she probably did seriously drive off that fucking cliff. She's like, kill me. I hate this fucking movie. <laughs> um, but anyway, anyway, so, okay, well, thank you so much, Bill, for being a guest, guys. You can check out Bill's uh, podcast, where he is the co-host of Bad Game Movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you so much for uh being on our show it's and we will always see you next a pleasure time. thank you again for having me okay bye bye, bye.